You're listening to the podcast from Withington Christian Church. For more information, visit withingtonchristian.church. Well, once more, it's a real pleasure to be up here again. Let's just open with a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the fact we can really remember as to who you really are. Lord, we thank you that we are able to to come together to put you in the place that you should have in our hearts. And so, Lord, as we come now, we open your word. We just pray that there may be something for each one of us to be able to to take away. So, Lord, once more, we ask that you be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about yourself. I'm not on first name terms or I don't have a friendship with the Queen. I don't really, I'm not, I can't say I've ever seen the Queen in real life. The closest I think I've been is outside Buckingham Palace to see where she lives. And I don't really know uh, the Prime Minister. I don't think I've ever seen the Prime Minister face to face. I'm not friends with him. The closest I've ever been to that is uh, outside number 10 to see where he lives. But There is somebody who I do have a relationship with and I do know on a one-to-one basis. And we've looked this morning at the person who has created the whole of heaven and earth. And we've seen and we give praise to that person who has created everything. And yet, we're able to have a personal relationship with him. We're able to know him on a one-to-one to one basis. The people who the Queen and the government, those people who I've never seen, they make the laws and the rules to govern the land. The government that I live in England, same as you do, we're living in this land and we're governed by those laws and we live by them. And over the period of time that we're born, or the period of time that we live in England, we get to know what the laws are and we live by those laws and they become part of our lives. When God in the Old Testament, and you can read it in the book of Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, when the children of Israel had become God's nation, he gave them the the laws to live by as to the rules and the regulations that he wanted for them to live. In Matthew's gospel, on the Sermon of the Mount, we have a similar situation that God is setting out how he would like this new kingdom to look like, how he wants people to live in that new kingdom. In the first few chapters of Matthew, he comes and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Sermon on the Mount is a bit of a teaching as to how Jesus wanted people to behave, how he expected them to live. So you can guess where I'm going with my sermon today or my message is we're going to continue in the book of Matthew. Months and months ago, I thought to myself, I wonder if I will get the Sermon on the Mount, on the the, the Lord's Prayer. I thought, I'll look forward to that time where it's available and it may come across my path to do it. So here I am. Okay, so... This is what the Lord's put on my heart to to share with you today. 
So for the last three weeks, or the last, yeah, including today, we've been looking at prayer. Wesley has covered prayer. The, the gentleman, George, last week looked at uh, the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel. And so again, you've got it today. So you have to ask yourself, if God tells you something once, it's quite important. If he tells you twice, it's a bit more important. Now it's three times. <laughs> so you better do it. So, let's just read Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Well, not all of it. Chapter 6 and verse 7. Starting at verse 7. But... When you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not therefore like unto them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray you, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. One other verse, is, one other verse I want to, uh, to look at is... So go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. As to what the teaching on the, on the Sermon on the Mount is sort of trying to say to us, Jesus is saying to us, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes when we do uh, teaching on a a regular basis of going through a text because sometimes you have uh, speakers who come on the turn and they speak on a different subject sometimes we can lose the uh, the theme or the, the flow of the text that we're looking at and so I just want you to have a look back at that Matthew chapter 20 to remind us that Jesus is showing or saying that your righteousness has to be better than that of the scribes and Pharisees otherwise there's no entrance into the kingdom. And we see there's a change. When Jesus comes to this part of prayer, there's a change between Jesus showing of those people in old time, in the, in the Sermon of the Mount bit, of how the law should be followed. It tells us at the beginning, it says, when you do your alms or you give, uh, you give to the poor, in verse 2 it says, do not sound a trumpet, but, Jesus says, instead, do it in secret. He talks about prayer in verse 5. Do not stand in the synagogue or the street corners showing people the outward appearance of what you do, but do it in secret. Later on, when we read... Later on in the, in the sermon, we will see Jesus says about fasting. Do not have a sad look or a disfigured face, so it looks as though you're doing fasting. But do it in secret. Because 
Jesus is showing it's not the outward appearance as to what we look like, but it's about our heart. In the Old Testament, the law was about what you did and how you acted, but now it's about the heart. If we were to look at religions in the, in the world, you would say that they all have their outward appearance. The Hindus, they have this, the mark on the foreheads. The Sikhs, they have the turban. The Muslims, they have the beards. But you will see that religion, it's just man's attempt to get back to God. We've seen this morning how that, God, how that man was separated from God, thrown out of the garden. But yet we've also seen how God has intervened and sent Jesus to bring us back, to bring that friendship and that communion back so that we can now come into God's presence. We've been able to see that. Man's religion takes you to a, a road with an end, like going down a maze. It goes to the end and no further. It can't take you no further. There's only Jesus that can take you all the way into, into God's presence. There's a bit of a difference in the context between Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel. And so they use the, the, the teaching of the Lord's Prayer in a slightly different manner for slightly different reasons. And we could look at those, those differences today, but we won't be doing. But we will notice that in each case, it's only a template. It's only a pattern or an example to follow in how to pray. The danger that we've got is if we just go and repeat it ad verbatim on a, just say it out in, as a prayer, then we're sort of going against what Jesus is saying in, in before he says, but when you pray, don't use vain repetitions as people often do. If that's what we do with it, we're just falling into that trap of doing that. So if it's a template or an example, what really then is Jesus teaching? And what I'd like to do today is I'd like to go through sort of each, each line and see what that Jesus is showing us about on the Lord's Prayer. I know Wesley has spoken on uh, prayer and George last week spoke on uh, generalising, but we've not really looked at each line as to what it means. If you want to look at our... Let's go through our Father, which in, is in heaven. Now, I'm not going to really say anything much on that, but if you've got a good understanding of that, go back onto the website or the YouTube and watch last week's. Uh, because George covered that very in-depth last week as to uh, the message. And really, all it was saying is who we are, our Father, which is in heaven, who we are before God, that we are his children, we're his sons, and with the joint heirs with Christ. Hallowed be thy name. And in some respects, George also spoke on this as well. So it's a good opportunity to get those two and to also check out uh, the past teaching. But who is God to us? If you were to look at in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowing what to do in any given situation. That's what wisdom in, is, knowing what to do in a situation. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. 
Our view of God and how we see him will shape our relationship with him. It will determine as to what we do and how we behave before God. And the fear of the Lord as to who he really is will determine our actions. Do we look at God as God Almighty, as he's your best mate, or do we look at God as God Almighty, the King of heaven and earth, the one who created everything, the one who is above all, do we give him the respect that he rightly deserves, or do we have him a bit of our, as our mate? To make somebody hallowed is to be made separate, to be consecrated, to be made holy. God is above all. He is separate. There's nobody like him. So we have to put him in that place. Isaiah, if we were to read of them, and Ezekiel, when they came into the presence of God, the first thing they did was fall on their faces because they realized what they were compared to God himself and I'm sure if God was to walk into this room we would do the same that's the only thing really we can do because God is so far above ourselves and so where we put God in our lives will be determined how we react to him thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven the kingdom, you could say a united kingdom, it's the reign, isn't it? It's the, how, the reign or the rule of the people in it. And so we, at this moment in time, as Wesley prayed this morning, we are at this moment under Satan's rule and Satan's kingdom at this moment. We are governed by Satan's systems. He's the one who is dictating as to what goes on we know that one day that will not take place and god and jesus will come but jesus will come as a mighty conqueror no longer as a suffering servant and he will do away with satan and all that is evil but that's sometime in the future but at this moment in time we live under satan's systems a Bible study for you to do in your own time is to go back and to look at Babel and Babylon and to see the history of how they started right back in Genesis and you will see them finishing off in the book of Revelation and see how their, uh, they, their flow through the scriptures and you'll see also their future. In, Math in John's gospel he says in Matthew 17 in uh, sorry in John 17 where Jesus prays he says we're in the world but we're not part of it if I wanted to go and live in France then I wouldn't really be part of England anymore I've up my sticks and I've gone and living in France we've done we really have done the same with England or this world system Satan's world system we're saying, I don't want to live in that system anymore. I now want to go live under God's kingdom. I want to live under a different kingdom. No longer do I want to live under Satan's kingdom. I've changed my mind. 
Jesus has paid the price and he's made it possible to go and move my house and to go and live in God's kingdom. And so that's what, we, that's what we've done. But let me ask you a question. It says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who's going to carry out God's will on the earth? Is that us or is that God? Now, it's okay for God to do that and to go, for God to carry out his will on the earth. And maybe we don't really get involved in it too much because it doesn't ask too much of us. In God's kingdom, there is no sin. There's no wrongdoing. So, let me ask you a question. Are you really prepared for God's kingdom to come on the earth? Because if that's the case, it means transforming our lives as we might live them now to how God would really want them. And we can look at each other, can't we? And we often do look at each other people and we set our standards as to, to what they're doing. I look at Wesley here and I go, well, maybe I'm a better person than Wesley. <laughs> maybe, who knows? But I can look at Ricky here and say, well, Ricky is a better person than me. But... What standards are we, are we looking at? We're looking at human standards. But when we look at God's standards, that's the standard that we need to live by. But are we really wanting God's kingdom to be on earth? Are we really willing to live by God's standards? I think that's a bit difficult. Because it means sort of letting go of everything of this world that you might enjoy. Because it says, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And your neighbour as yourself. Very difficult things to do. It means giving up my time to serve other people. Instead of having a bit of me time, which we're told to do. It means giving that up. Maybe it means, it means being hated by those people around us because we're standing up for God and his kingdom and his standards that he expects. And maybe sometimes we have to take a stand and that's uncomfortable. But do we really want that? Are we willing to step forward and say, yeah, I really want God's kingdom? to be in my life to give that up it's okay for us to think that one day we're going to be in glory and that's the real hope that we have but are we willing to let go of this earth now and let me ask you another question if God gave you the choice of going to glory when it suited you how long would it be before you said yes I'm ready to go Or are there things that you still want to do on earth before you say, I'm ready? Give us this day 
our daily bread. Once we've understood who God really is, once we've understood our position in God and our relationship with, with the Father, only once we've understood that, only once that we've been prepared to have God's kingdom come in our lives and to live by that standard, then only then can we say, give us our daily bread. Because once we understand those things, we will only, we will only ask for those things to do with God's will. Romans 12 and verse 2 says, be you, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Only when we've renewed our mind to think in the way that we should do in God's kingdom will we then ask what we're supposed to ask for. If we pray outside of God's will, can we really expect God to answer? Or even to, to acknowledge our prayers if we pray outside of God's will? We're supposed to ask for our daily bread. So, each day as it comes, the Old Testament, the people, the children in the wilderness, God gave them their manna on a daily basis. They had to go and collect it, only on the Saturday that they got two lots. But it was a daily thing that they had to do. Same as ourselves. It says, take up your cross daily. Therefore, have no thought for the morrow, for tomorrow shall take thought of itself for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. In, later on in Matthew. What it's saying is, don't think of tomorrow because tomorrow has its own problems. Today's problems are it's just sufficient enough to have to cope with. Tomorrow's problems, you'll deal with them as they come. It's a daily basis walking with the Lord each day. To get yourself up, to get yourself renewed in your mind as to take yourself forward in that day. What is our daily bread? Is it physical bread? Or is it spiritual? Or maybe it might be both. How much food and nutrients does your body need to survive? Not a lot, I don't think. If you was to go into uh, the desert or be uh, shipwrecked on a desert island, you would probably find that it's not a lot of food that you need. But what if God strips away everything in our lives apart from just those necessities? Would we be okay with that? Elijah, he was fed by the ravens uh, just by a stream for a number of times. Would we, uh, would we be okay with that, that we just lived in by a stream and God sent the birds and they brought us bread and some meat? And that's all you had to live on. Would we be okay with that? Let's face it, for in, it's only since the Industrial Revolution 
that we've got all these things that are now open to us, washing machines and cookers and dryers and you turn the tap on now on the, the cooker and the gas comes out. Or you turn the tap and your water comes out. Since then, before that, you had to go and cook on your open fire and go to the wood and collect your fire. And you had to go down to the local stream and do your washing. But are we okay for that if God strips away all our, our modern machinery and go back to living like that? Would that be okay with you? Is a wealthy life okay? Because it's okay, it's, we think about stripping our life back to, to next to nothing. Well, is a wealthy life okay? Because let's look at the, the facts of, in, in the new heaven and earth, there's going to be nothing like it. It says the streets are going to be paved with gold. So if you're walking on gold, which we count as one of the most important or the, the price, the good price in, in the world, and that's your pavement, then what sort of place are you going to be living in? King David, he had, if you look at his life, he had the riches. And King Solomon, who was even richer. But yet, we see that it wasn't the wealth that people had, it was their heart. That God looked at a person's heart. And that is what's important to God. So yes, you can have wealth. But where's a person's heart if they do? What is a Christian's satisfaction? Where does a Christian supposed to get their satisfaction from? Is it from having God give you our daily bread? But is our daily bread also spiritual? How often do we spend time in God's presence? Do we take time out in the day to, to pray to God and to thank him for who he is? Do we set ourselves apart maybe in, in, our, uh, in our little room to speak to God on a one-to-one -one basis and open the word and we're not saying that you've got to spend hours doing that. Personally, I don't spend hours doing that. But I spend the morning and I pray and I open the Bible and I read a bit of the scriptures and it sets you up for the day. But it's important that we spend time with God himself if he's given us the opportunity to have a relationship with him. As we've mentioned, you can have religion and you can go to church and you can do all the things that they tell you to do. But at the end of the day, it only goes down to the end of the road. There is no relationship with God whatsoever at the end of it. You're just following a set of traditions and rules and regulations. The difference here is we have a relationship with God himself. And so it's important to be able to, to spend that time. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the only portion that we have something to do. Everything else, God has done it. This is the only one that we've got something to do. I struggled with this one. This one I had to do a lot of work on. But, ask, let me ask you another question. See, I like asking questions. Is the Christian life conditional? We live in a day of grace, and we like to think that maybe it's not. We like to think that God will look after us. But is it conditional? Our rewards in heaven are conditional upon our actions on earth. We'll be judged for what we've done in the kingdom of God and what we've done with the gospel message. Our discipline from God is conditional on our Christian life, how we live our Christian life. It tells us if we're not a son of God, then we won't get disciplined. So discipline comes with the fact that you are a son of God. Discipline only comes really when you've done something wrong. Our salvation is conditional. It's conditional on the fact that we take the free gift of salvation from God. If you don't take it, you don't get it. Our salvation is conditional on our belief on the work that Jesus did on the cross. If we don't believe that Jesus did the work on the cross, then we won't have salvation. It's conditional. Jesus, early on in the Sermon of the Mount, has taught on these matters on how to uh, treat other people, to make sure that you're reconciled with your brother before taking your gift to the altar. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Instead, you have to show mercy and to love your neighbour, yet also you now have to love your enemies too. But it says to us, lead us not into temptation. What does that actually mean? And I came up, I found three different interpretations. So I'm just going to run through these quickly. Temptation is to do with sin. That's one of the uh, interpretations. That if you, you're asking God not to lead you in, into being tempted by sin, so that you won't fall. But I see a, a, a bit of a, a problem with that one, because in James chapter 1 it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does God tempt any man. What well, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. So, God doesn't tempt people with the fact of they may sin afterwards. God doesn't lead people into a situation where they might sin. So, I don't really see how that sort of fits. But I'm not going to tell you which one I think or I will do. But 
With these three interpretations, I'm going to leave it up to yourself to do your own homework as to which one you might think it is. Temptation is also a different inter interpretation. That is Temptation is to do with trials and the difficulties that come in your life. And the fact is that you're asking God not to put you through so difficult trials that you might fail and lose your faith. You don't want to go through something that's too difficult for you. But yet, we read in the scriptures that God brings circumstances about our lives to test our heart and our motives. God allows Satan to test Job, and Satan also tested Peter. But we also read in 1 Corinthians that God always provides a way of escape. So do we really need to pray? God don't lead us into not giving us too many trials, because whatever trials that you face, God has always provided a way of escape for it anyway. So does that really fit? For me, not really. But you have to make your own mind on that yourselves. So for me, what is the meaning of this really, what is this phase really saying? And often we have to look at the broader aspects or the broader context of the scripture that we're looking at. How does this phrase fit into the Sermon of the Mount? Because it has to, because it's included in it. How does it fit into the rest of the Lord's Prayer? If we were to look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's about how a person is to live in this new kingdom. It's about how God views the heart and not the outward appearance. The first part of the Lord's Prayer is how we are to recognise our position before God and how are we are to recognise who God is to us. It's to ask for our daily provision, both physically and spiritually, to show that we will act in the same manner in the new kingdom as Christ does in regards to other people. But if we were to look at the whole Sermon of the Mount, it's how Jesus is showing that they've been led astray by the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. That the scribes and Pharisees who were the leaders have given them false teaching. They've led them down a false path. And it's not where they should be. They've taken people in the, the wrong direction. And for me, what this phrase means is not lead us not into temptation, is asking God not to lead us in a wrong way. It's about asking God to lead us in a correct way. Don't lead us astray, but deliver us from the rule of Satan and the authority of Satan. If we was to go back to chapter 5, it says verse 19 whosoever shall break one of these commandments shall te and teach men to do so he shall be called the least in the kingdom 
of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's a difference between people who teach other people and lead people astray. They're not going to make it to people who do teach people rightly. They're the ones who will be in the kingdom. I think Jesus is saying here that we should be asking for the correct teaching so as not to break one of these least of these commandments. I think Dave Newall's words, this is really what, what this phrase is. Lead us not astray and keep us on the right path and give us the right teaching but deliver us from the system and the teaching of Satan that may come across our way. And it's important that that takes place, that we do. Because once we do our Father, which art in heaven, and put him in his rightful place, and we say, hallowed be your name, and we look at God, who God really is, and we ask for our daily bread in accordance to God's will, and we say that we're going to forgive other people because God has forgiven us and we live in a right way, and we renew our mind to live in the right kingdom, into God's kingdom that we've decided that we want to live in, then we will say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If we understand our position, we will be faithful to God and we won't fail. And for me, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer to live in a right life in God's kingdom. So I hope that's of use to you. I will finish there. You've been listening to the podcast from Withington Christian Church. For more information, go to withingtonchristian.church.